2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, this opening verse is a verse that I oftentimes recite to myself right before I stand up to preach, where Paul writes, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Then if you would look ahead to chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And if you would look in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 3. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. All of these passages had something in common. I wonder if what you caught on to uh, at least uh, a word that occurred in every one of these passages. I didn't uh, stress it the way I sometimes do, so I'll just give it to you. It is the word endure. We are called on to endure. When the Apostle Paul was called into church planting, you might say there was a sense in which he was able to ride the wave of Pentecostal power. It was not long before his conversion that 3,000 souls had been saved by a single sermon preached by Peter. 
Soon after this, Peter raised up a man who had been lame from its birth and preached another sermon. Some 5,000 more believed on that occasion and were added to the church. And so the church experienced a tremendous thrust forward following the ascension of Jesus Christ. This forward thrust did meet opposition, however, but it seems that when persecution came upon the church at Jerusalem, it only contributed to that church flourishing. So we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, that they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. I love that statement. There is so much packed into that statement that you need to try to envision. They were scattered abroad. They were chased from their homes. They had to leave their familiar surroundings, leaving their jobs, leaving their neighbors, leaving everything basically scattered abroad. And what was their response to it? They went everywhere preaching the word. You could say that one of the key figures trying to subdue the gospel was instead subdued by the gospel. And so we have recorded for us in the next chapter of Acts the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The persecutor became a preacher. And thanks to Paul's conversion, that wave of gospel power went forth to the Gentile world with great might. Souls were saved, churches were built. The impact of Paul's preaching was so far-reaching that he could say to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 6, the truth of the gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Already by that time, Paul could say that the gospel has impacted you at Colossae the way it has in all the world, and it brings forth much fruit. You could say that the known world, certainly at that time then, had already received the gospel. What has been true throughout church history was true even in apostolic times, however. Following a period of great spiritual power and blessing, the devil moves in to deceive and disrupt, and grievous wolves enter in who spare not the flock. So by the time Paul would write his last epistle, he would speak in chapter 1 of Phagellus and Hermogenes who turned away from him. In chapter 2, it's Hymenaeus and Philetus who denied the resurrection and overthrew the faith of some. In chapter 4, he speaks of Demas, who had forsaken him, and Alexander the coppersmith, who did him much evil. That initial wave of power and blessing that began on the day of Pentecost was subsiding, even by the time Paul penned this final letter to Timothy. And while the word of God would continue to advance, that advancement would soon be not so observable to the fleshly eye, and so it would become the church's function to be steadfast and to persevere in the faith as it sought to hold its ground 
if not advance. Paul could see, even in his own time, difficult days coming. In fact, the third chapter of this epistle is devoted to describing to Timothy the kinds of days that would lie ahead. He describes those days as days of apostasy and hypocrisy. There would be those who would have a form of godliness, but would deny the power thereof. I think it's in connection with the kind of days Timothy would face that Paul exhorts him in chapter 1 and verse 13 to hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus and to continue in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. That's in chapter 3 and verse 14. These are exhortations, you could say, that call for steadfast endurance on the part of Timothy and hence on the part of you and me as this epistle comes to us today. They're comprehended in the words of our text in chapter 2 and verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we find this matter of endurance then to be something that's emphasized by Paul. So we read the words of our text, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And again in verse 10, I endure all things for the elect's sake. And verse 12, a reference perhaps not as obvious, reads, If we suffer... And that word suffer means literally to endure. We shall also reign with him. We can trace the word also into chapter 4, where we read in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And in verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Make full proof of thy ministry. You get the idea then, don't you, that Paul is placing something of an emphasis in this epistle on the idea of endurance, steadfast endurance. I dare say that we live today in a day that calls for the same kind of steadfast endurance. We are not at this point in time riding the wave of Pentecostal power. Oh, we pray for it, we long for it, and we should continue to seek it. But we must also recognize that though the waiting time be long, our commitment to the, go- to the cause of the gospel must not grow weak. And so I'd like to consider this afternoon the simple truth that commitment to the cause of Christ calls for endurance. Commitment to the cause of Christ calls for endurance. Thou, therefore, my son, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Think with me, first of all, in connection with this endurance on, one, what it is that we must endure. What are we called on to endure? In the text we've just read, show us that there are many things 
that must be endured. Our text tells us we must endure hardness. In verse 10, Paul tells us he endured all things. In chapter 3 and verse 11, all things would include persecutions and afflictions. He tells Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 11 to endure afflictions. Now, I realize that it's easy to look at these verses and say to ourselves, at least at this present moment, thankfully, these verses really don't have much to do with me. They speak of hardship and oppression. We're aware that Paul was in prison for his faith as he penned these words to Timothy. We also know our Christian heritage bears record of many who were persecuted for their faith. We read with awe the stories of the martyrs, stories of those who were burned or drowned or fed to the lions. We don't find ourselves facing the same hardships that Paul faced, at least not yet. We still enjoy the freedom to worship openly and freely. We're not yet persecuted for our faith. We have not been scattered abroad like the early church at Jerusalem. Perhaps that time will come when we'll be persecuted to that degree, so we may reason. And at that time, I will have need for these exhortations. But for now, I tuck them away somewhere in the back of my mind for possible future reference. When we read our text, however that we're to endure hardness, I think we have to acknowledge that whether or not we're facing afflictions and persecutions, we are at all times in every generation faced with hardness. And the phrase endure hardness is a single compound word in the Greek. The noun form of the word is made up of two words, one which means evil, and the other, which in the New Testament means depraved passions or lusts. Paul is saying to Timothy to hold up under evil, depraved passions. And when we understand this meaning of the phrase, I think you can see at once that it has broad application to all the people of God in every generation, no matter whether they are suffering outward persecution or not. Every child of God must do battle against the wicked, depraved passions that come from within and without. We recognize, especially in our own day, that it is such a spirit of depravity that dominates this world. We would characterize it as hardness of heart toward Christ and toward the gospel. We're surrounded and we're bombarded by what we could call the rotten fruit of such hardness. It comes to us over the airwaves. We're exposed to it in the workplace. Even in the checkout lines of the grocery stores, we come under the attack of magazines that are designed to provoke depraved passions. Paul is telling Timothy that he must persevere in the faith while he lives in a world that is no friend to Christ and no friend to grace. 
So it is essential for us to endure this hardness. We must keep faith, or to put it another way, we must maintain spiritual sensitivity while we walk in a world that is ungodly. We must keep close communion with our Savior in a world that rejects him and lives with no reference to him. We must strive to maintain a vitality to our religion lest we degenerate into having a mere form of godliness that knows no power. Verse 5. And I don't think it would be incorrect to say that Christians who live in a soft world such as ours run the greatest risk of failing to endure such hardness. The ease they become accustomed to can put them to sleep and make them oblivious to the hardness of the world toward Christ. So we must endure hardness. This is the negative side of our endurance. It refers to what we must resist. There is a positive side also to our endurance. This is given to us by Paul's statement in chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The obvious implication is that we are to endure sound doctrine. Here the word endure takes on a positive meaning, the meaning of holding fast and not letting go of sound doctrine, holding fast the great doctrines of the faith, the doctrine of God in his Trinitarian uh, existence, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his eternality, holding fast the doctrine of the covenant of grace, which is where the gospel originates and encompasses such things as God's eternal decree and election and predestination holding fast to the doctrine of the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished by his atoning death, holding fast the glorious truth of justification by faith. These are the things that contribute to the Christian's spiritual health. It's interesting that the word sound in this phrase, sound doctrine, conveys the idea of sound health. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 31, the Lord Jesus said, they that are whole need not a physician. Again, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 10, Luke says, they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. And the word whole in these two cases comes from the same word as the word sound in our text. Just as Luke, the physician, is using the term to describe physical health, we could say that Paul is using the term to describe what contributes to spiritual health, sound or whole doctrine. So hardness must be endured. Sound doctrine must be held fast. Our commitment to the cause of the gospel calls for that kind of endurance. Think with me secondly on why 
we must endure. Why we must endure. And why must we endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ? And the answer is quite simply that if we don't keep faith through the times of hardness, then we will soon be swallowed up by that hardness and will ourselves become hardened. I said a moment ago that Christians living in a soft world run the greatest risk of failing to endure hardness. You see, most of us here live out very regular routines. Day by day we get up, we go to work, we perform similar tasks at work day by day. There's a certain mundaneness to every profession. Wives, many of them, stay home, go through the same routines day by day. Children go to school or are taught at home. They learn their subjects, they do their homework, they do their chores, and they use the other 23 hours and 30 minutes of the day for recreation. <laughs> Pretty routine, isn't it? And it can be tempting to the believer through such regularity to think that time spent with Christ in prayer and in the Scriptures really won't have all that great an impact on my day. I'm going to do the same things today, whether I pray or not. He may reason. Add to this scenario the demands that come to us through the workplace or in the home, and it becomes even easier to be swallowed up by the hardness of our day. When I worked in the printing industry many years ago, it seemed that every job that came my way was an emergency. The customer absolutely must have this job now. The world will stop turning if we missed a certain deadline. That was the prevailing mentality, and I don't believe it was or is unique to the printing industry. And so the demand is always, can you stay later? Can you come in earlier? Can you work Saturday? Can you stay until this thing is finished? I can remember one time, and it only happened one time, where I was actually prevailed upon to come in and work on Christmas Day. Can you imagine it? <laughs> wasn't a Sunday, or it wouldn't have happened, but called into work on Christmas Day, and since I was being paid holiday pay on top of double time, I willingly went and said, Merry Christmas, call on me anytime to work on Christmas Day, and if you're going to give me holiday pay on top of double time, uh, yeah, I'll work every Christmas, I suppose. But... The demands on us are great. Now bring together these demands plus the regularity of our routines. Throw in the temptation to think that time spent in prayer and in the Word has no significant impact on our day, and it all adds up to contributing to spiritual hardness. We cultivate hearts that are no longer sensitive to the Spirit of God. 
We become so used to regularity and responding to demands that we forget how to read the little things in God's providential dealings. We miss opportunities. We lack vision. We forget our purpose and our mission in life to serve and glorify Christ. We get pulled into the attitude of the world, which yields constant discontentment. Now, if I've been describing you, then I'm afraid you have not been enduring hardness very well. Instead, you become hard through spiritual carelessness. But now change the scenario slightly. Instead of yielding to the demands of life to the extent that I'm spiritually negligent, you spend time in prayer. You commune with your Savior through His Word. You seek Him for His grace. He speaks to your heart. Now you step out the door of your home just like you've done a thousand times before, but instead of the drudgery of a mundane routine, you are immediately impacted by the blessing that God has given you this new day. He's given you fresh air to breathe. He's given you the clear blue sky and the sunshine to enjoy. He's given you purpose and meaning as you launch out to serve him. Your heart sings within you that this is the day which the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. If you have kept faith in such a way, then you've endured hardness. You have persevered to keep your faith quickened while living in a world that is stone cold and hard against the things of God. We must endure the hardness of this world. But we're given another reason why we must endure. Chapter 4, verse 3 tells us that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Even in Paul's day, the sound doctrine of the gospel was under attack. It was being displaced by what he calls profane and vain babblings, chapter 2, verse 16, and foolish and ignorant speculations, chapter 2, verse 23. Oh, you would have thought that Paul had written this letter to 21st century Christians, wouldn't you? In our day, the vain babblings movement is one of the fastest growing movements in the country. It replaces sound doctrine with a mystical sensationalism. Sound doctrine is for highfalutin theologians. It's the sensationalism of tongues or other charismatic-type phenomenon that counts. And so long as you have the mystical experience, great latitude can be allowed in doctrine. People in that movement, if they're saved at all, they are certainly not whole. And the irony is that they would say the same thing about us. We're not whole because we are so lacking in spiritual experience and fulfillment. We're nothing but a bunch of dry Christian bookworms. And going to the other extreme, some Christians would make their religion the religion of the letter of the law. They tend to deny spiritual experience altogether. And their religion becomes largely 
academic. I have a book, I've referred to it um, quite often, though not recently. One of my favorite, this is one of those stuck on an island books. You ever face that question? If you're stuck on an island, you can have a few books besides the Bible. Which ones would you have? There's actually a, um, a podcast that deals with that question on occasion. Rather interesting to learn what some of these big names and reform circles would choose for the books to be on their island with. I choose Hugh Martin, The Abiding Presence. And I love that little volume because it's helped me see the proper function or balance between doctrine and experience. Hugh Martin draws from the very first verse in Matthew's Gospel, which says, The book, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. He compares this to the last verse in Matthew's Gospel, which refers to the presence the spiritual presence of Christ with believers. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. These two verses taken together comprehend the objective and subjective elements of Christianity. The book. The book contains the objective revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we learn about Christ, we learn about sin, we learn about the law, we learn about God's will, about salvation, or in other words, sound doctrine. The book without the presence of Christ becomes the dead letter of the law. Religion becomes nothing more than a creed and a code of conduct with no spiritual vitality. We need the book, but we need the presence of Christ with the book. The book points us, after all, to him. Then take the subjective element of Christ, his presence. Lo, I am with you always. We have the promise of his presence. But if you take his presence without the book, What you end up with is an indiscernible mystical experience that really can't be defined. It takes the book to give meaning to the experience. It takes the presence of Christ to give vitality to the book. They both work together. You want both. You don't want one to the exclusion of the other. You want both because they work together. It is as the Spirit of God speaks to us through the Word of God that we enter into true and vital and spiritual fellowship with Christ. And so sound doctrine, far from robbing us of the richness of spiritual fellowship with Christ, rather contributes to its fullness and makes it more readily discernible. So we must endure sound doctrine For the time will come, and indeed is already upon us, when they will not endure it. We must persevere in it, not only because it is the church's duty to defend it, but because it is essential to our fellowship with Christ. One more point then to consider here briefly, and then I'm done, and this has to do with how we endure We've seen the things that we need to endure. We've given reasons why we must endure. Let's ask the question and answer it now. How is this to be done? 
And Paul makes it uh, pretty clear we are to endure as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. How does a good soldier endure hardness? Well, the best way to know is to find an example of a good soldier and see the driving force behind his endurance. I can think of one example in the Old Testament, that of Uriah, 2 Samuel chapter 11. You may recall the story of how David sinned against that man's wife, Bathsheba. In his attempt to cover up his sin, he recalled Uriah from the battlefront, hoping that Uriah would take his ease at home while he was on leave and spend time with his wife. Uriah, however, did no such thing. What was the driving force behind his self-denial? It was loyalty and devotion to David and to the cause of Israel. I'm not going to stay at home in the comfort of my wife while the other soldiers, the other army, my colleagues, so to speak, are out on the field of battle. So should it be loyalty and devotion to Christ that becomes the driving force behind our perseverance in the faith. For the cause of his gospel, we should be willing to exercise self-denial. For the sake of his elect, we should be willing, as Paul was, to endure all things that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And as a good soldier can do no better than to look to his captain... For leadership and motivation, so must we look to our captain, which is Christ himself. I've often viewed the epistle to the Hebrews as being very Christ-centered, as I mentioned at least a couple of times this morning. No other book in the New Testament is so focused upon the person and work of Christ, and we are told in that epistle to look to him, and to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. But I found it interesting this time around to discover that we are to consider him specifically in terms of what he himself endured. Chapter 12, verse 2 looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. He endured the cross. He endured the contradiction of sinners. Think of all the forces that conspired against him. You could argue that the forces of heaven, earth, and hell were all gathered together against him, but still he endured. Now I know there's a liberal view of the atonement that sees in Christ's death, nothing more than a moral example, a commendable display of sacrificial love, but nothing else. We see in it much more. We see him by his bite accomplishing redemption. We see him appeasing his father's wrath. We see him reconciling a people to God by his atoning death. But we do see in him as well an example also 
of one who endured. As our leader and the captain of our salvation, we marvel at all he endured, and we find him to be a perfect and sublime example to us when it comes to the matter of our own endurance. When it comes to enduring hardness, we are in fact simply striving to be like Christ. So brothers and sisters in Christ, endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let's close them in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we cannot deny that there are times when we lose our spiritual sensitivity through spiritual neglect and carelessness. We ask, O Lord, for cleansing, we ask for forgiveness, and we ask for the quickening power of thy Spirit. May he so work mightily in our hearts that we do enjoy precious communion with our Savior day by day, even in the simple things, even in the routine things of life. May we be enabled to see the good hand of our God as we strive to glorify and enjoy Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.